Dr. Ian Storey, lecturer at RMIT in Information Systems. It's great to have you here and, and thank you for talking to me today. Uh, we have spoken before, Ian, and we've talked about supercomputing and uh, other interesting things, but great to speak today under, under slightly altered circumstances. Uh, fantastic. Thanks, Piers. Yeah, we've got quite a setup here. Um, with two different computers in two different places doing the recording. Yep, we have. This seems to be the, the best way to do it. There's a little bit of it involved, a bit of playing around with software and microphones and headsets and stuff like that. But hey, this is the, uh, this is the new paradigm that we're all living in. And, and I guess the whole world is going through the same thing. Yeah, I'm one of the few people who actually likes being locked away with my computer. I'm getting much more work done without having to travel in and out of work and I just sort of uh, find it uh, quite good except for teaching students. Mm. It's a much less personal experience and there's a lot less of the classroom dynamic yep. Um, yep. during tutorials. Yep. yep, indeed, I can imagine. For educators it's... It's a challenge, but at least this technology that we're using has been around for a while, and a lot of people have got it. You know, most people have got a laptop with a microphone built into it. They can quite easily get hold of video conferencing software if they don't already have it. Uh, so there are some solutions that were kind of immediately at, uh, immediately at hand to this situation. I think it makes everything a bit more personal if you can see someone in uh, video conferencing software. Yeah. Like, what is there? There's Skype, there's Zoom, there's Microsoft Meetings. Yes. Probably a gazillion others. Um, we use Collaborate Ultra to teach. I'm finding I'm talking to friends and people all over Australia, um, and uh, I'm getting more personal contact than I had before, in a way. Yeah. It's just really great. The... the Technology is fantastic. Yep. It's true. People are, are more connected in, 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 well, certainly more digitally connected than they've been in the past. They're using this technology that's been around for a while now, whether it's FaceTime on a phone or House Party or, or Zoom or, or the, the more professional software that you, that you mentioned or WebEx is another one that's, they all do the similar sort of stuff. Where you've got some, I think, got some pretty interesting insights in regard to all this is is your mathematics background and you sent me a very interesting video from YouTube of, of some modeling that had been done and it showed all the different variables of, uh, of how a virus spreads. The, the modeling that, that, you sh that was shown in that video was, was interesting because it showed all these different scenarios. It sort of said, okay, if you take out hand washing, here's the way that the, the virus behaves uh, in a large group or if you include social isolation, social isolation and hand washing, um, uh, then, but you only partially da sh shut down your economy, um, you know, it showed that scenario as well. It just modeled all these different, uh, you know, and, 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 it, and it clearly pointed to things like train stations and airports as, as big hubs where you're you know, much more likely to be spreading uh, a virus. So it, it was just a great way of looking at all the different, different options that society and economies have and seeing how they play out when you've got a virus that's very contagious and you know, wants to grow exponentially. Yes, when <clears throat> I first saw the curves for how 
this virus was growing, it was an exponential curve. Mm. Whereas SARS had been more linear, this was exponential. Mm. As a mathematician, you look at that and that, that sets um, alarms going. Mm. When I also heard that there was a ship picking up passengers in Hong Kong who had the virus, thought, well, it's not fully contained either. Mm. So even though it's death rate, I mean, it's a horrible term to use, but there's a growth rate and a death rate. Even though its death rate was small, God forbid we get one that has the same death rate as SARS, which I think was 15%, its ability to infect is really high. So the model starts out with those two numbers and the growth of people who are infected grows exponentially. The growth of people who die grows exponentially with it because it's just a percentage yep. of that. Yep. And then it <clears throat> and then it reaches a point where I forget the term that they use where people um, no longer are in the potential population of being infected. Yeah, they're, they're, there's um, a I word, yeah, it's removed or departed. Yeah, removed, yeah. I think. Yeah, which either yeah. means that they've, they've had it and recovered, which has some question marks about it, or they've sadly died. With coronavirus, you don't get lifelong immunity no you might, might only last a few years that that the, there's a, i think yeah. there's more research that's needed about this and you probably would have seen how bill gates came out five years ago and issued a pretty stark warning to the world saying you know this could be a, a global pandemic if we don't do more about it in the way of research and his, his comments were based on the experience with sars and and, and mers um and unfortunately that fell on deaf ears or it, it wasn't acted on by governments and authorities around the world in the way that, that it might have been. Uh, and he's updated his, his TED talk just recently, and he does refer back to that. And he, you know, makes some interesting observations. And, and there's a few interesting observations around. And one of them is that this is going to cost a huge amount of money. It's going to take generations to pay this off. It's sort of mortgaging the future of younger people to save older people because the elderly are the I, ones who are far more susceptible to, to dying from this disease. When it comes to the medical side of it, I think everybody is, is spot on. When it comes to the economic side of it, you know, it is the dismal science and I'm a bit jaundiced about economics. Mm. My take on this is that around the world, especially in Australia, the banks have been loaning money at such low rates that people are willing to snap up the money. And the banks make money when they, when they give it out. It's a, you know, the money multiplier effect with the banks. It's quite a strange thing. Well, I, I think even working <laughs> out where, you know, where did the banks get the money from, even, even answering, I, I'm not even sure there are people who know the answer to ultimately where, where does all this debt <laughs> come from, you know, originally. It's a really good question to ask and to try to get an answer to is where, what is the money supply? And ultimately the money supply goes, the, the first source is, is the government. They give money through bonds and you know it goes into banks it's pretty hazy from there because when banks make a loan that's then an asset for them 
So because you pay it off and you're paying it off in the future, that asset for them grows. Mm. So as long as everybody is doing that, as long as we're all working 40 years for our mortgage for the banks, everybody's happy. Maybe you're not happy and I'm not happy, but but we're all mm, happy. The financial system is um, happy. Mm. Yes. But if there's too much debt, then the first person who, who gets out, pays off their debt, is okay. Or when they can't pay their debt and there are margin calls, then the banks have a problem that their assets are shrinking. Yeah. And they can't get that money back and they've got to account for it. Now, our previous Prime Minister, Turnbull, was actually a central banker. It seemed unusual to me that the Liberal Party would be supporting an inquiry into the banks over the inquiry into the unions, which was being touted. Yep. As a central banker, he could see that there were too many risky loans. So Australia, Australians' private debt is... 200% of GDP. Is it really? It was being kept alive by supply of money. Yeah. So the money supply was just being pumped in whenever it was needed to in order to keep stocks up so that everything doesn't fall apart. My super can fall apart. Mm. The idea is to stop a run on the banks. To stop it all come crashing down. Because yep. once it starts, it just unzips really, sure, really quickly. Sure. That's called a crash, you know. And there's a mammoth crash building. And if Turnbull had been able to stop the lending and somehow just just keep a cap on it, then the need for so much extra money might not have been so great. This is not money that's coming in through their planned rescue scheme. This is money that that is just being pumped in every day as a part of the banking system. Mm. The amount of money that's that's actually being pumped in is is billions. Yeah, yeah. In America, it's trillions. Yeah. Like each week, I, I don't know the actual numbers, but it's it's uh, astounding. Well, there's talk of of suing China for six trillion dollars. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> like it's China's good fault. Luck, yeah, good luck yeah. getting that that money out of them. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, look, it's it's a pretty. Uh, pretty dire situation i guess really what you're alluding to or what 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 this what this is about is that australia was in a very precarious situation and, and a lot of other countries around the world including america were in a pretty precarious situation before covid 19 came along so now to throw this in with this complete sort of shutdown of of the global economy in mo most places I mean, if there was a straw that was going to break the camel's back, then surely this is it. I think you're right, but they can just keep printing money. Yeah. But doesn't that mean that money and becomes valueless, that it, it ceases to have any... Well, this is the thing that I'm hazy on. How do they stop it then becoming inflationary? Yep. I understand it can keep the stock market afloat which keeps investment afloat mm. but that kind of investment is not it's not supply chain it's not manufacturing it's just finance yeah yep. how do you stop in the end i think as long as those stocks are being kept up 
it's not going back into the economy it's going into the value of the stocks boy do I feel sorry for the Millennials yes. and you mentioned that before yeah. their prospects have been slowly diminishing over time yeah they can't afford a house let alone two houses you know I, know. <laughs> I really really worry about that and what's going to happen after this the number of jobs that are going to be around who knows and I guess the thing about it, which we sort of started on, is that you know this is not a problem that's just applying in Australia. It's applying everywhere. In a way, it is. It is about trying to balance the the containment of a virus uh, until there's some kind of a solution, whether it's a vaccine or a treatment. Generally, for viruses, it's the treatment that comes along before the vaccine. I mean, there's even some talk of there being similarities between AIDS, the actual, the underlying virus that causes AIDS, and some of the characteristics of COVID-19 or of, of the, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19. And it took a long time before they didn't have a vaccine, but they had, before they had a, a, a decent, reliable treatment for, uh, for AIDS. So there may never be a, a vaccine for there might, COVID, yeah. and, and then there um, may be just treatments. Yeah, this is a, a kind of flu that has been around for a long time and they've just been treating it, you know, here and there where they can, but there's no, there's nothing that super stops it. On the, the point that it's like AIDS, I don't know if you've seen Dr. Fauci in, in the US. Yeah, it, it, How would you describe his well, position? He's, he's, he's in a very tricky position, isn't he? He, he can only say what the president <laughs> likes to hear. He was on Fox News, which is a bit of an echo chamber with the president. Mm. Laura Ingram, who's who's one of the, the shock jocks on Fox News, was saying it's like AIDS and AIDS is being treated now and we can get rid of it. And he was saying it's not at this point in time. It's not like AIDS at all. People will get it and a lot of people can die. You can't you can't just go back to to normal. Mm. You know, even with AIDS, it took a lot of time to develop those treatments that are extending people's lives. Yep, indeed. Fauci has actually been pretty good. He's managed to walk that line between Trump and, and reality. Yeah, but if Trump was to get his way and some of these states that saying, well, we, we just the economic top cost is too great and, and, you know, Trump's playing the sort of political card of, well, I'll support that because I'll support jobs and I'll support the economy and those things that are, are start, they're, they're, they're my strong suits, if you like. But if by ending isolation and restarting a, a industry and business in, in certain states where it suits him or where there's the support and where there's the uprising to do so, if you wind up then with, with a huge spike in the, in, in the death toll because you've done that, then that has very bad political repercussions for him I would have thought this is where knowing a bit of mathematics and knowing about exponential yeah. growth if you'll excuse the expression trumps all of that because you you manage to to keep it low so that the beds aren't being filled up and so that the end result is is a minimal amount of death so you manage to squash the curve underneath the limit where the where the beds in the hospitals are absolutely full yep. of people. New York has has reached that limit ages ago, and they're getting much more careful now, and they're finally bringing it down. When you have that careful containment, 
and then somebody gets out in a pocket, just one person gets out in a pocket, and they relax that pocket, inside that pocket it's just like starting all over again until there's enough people who have been deleted, as it were, who've either gotten immunity or, or died. It's just shocking to say we're going to get back to, to work by May 1st. Yeah. This is what Trump yeah. was saying. Yep. At least Morrison has been smart enough not to give it a date. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what he says is it's going to be four, four weeks at least. Well, four weeks is not long. And, and by the sound of things, we'll be lucky if, if we're able to fly internationally in a year from now. Not, not because must necessarily that we would have got out of control in Australia, but the risk of restarting it by allowing international travel is going to be too great to make it acceptable. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. We're either holding out for some kind of miracle and, and it seems unlikely vaccine. Would be yeah, lovely. Yeah, Would but, be but otherwise, it's lovely. a very it's a long-term issue which is, which is going to have a, a continued effect for quite some time. Now, tapping into uh, your mind, and I'm talking to Dr. Ian Storey, lecturer of information systems at RMIT. Ian, in some of the emails we exchanged before this, you talked about some of the, the mathematical ways of analysing this or some insights that can be gained from a mathematical approach. Say, for example, decision-making, quantitative risk analysis, the St. Peter's paradox. These are just some of the things that you, you tossed around in, in emails that we exchanged. Let's go down that track because that's an area that you've got some, some specialised knowledge in. The ability for human beings to make choices, the more I look at risk, it's more and more about how we make choices. My thinking is it's kind of uh, to go right back to you know uh, to the beginnings of it. I think we evolved to make choices. We're programmed to make choices because it it allows us really good strategic flexibility, so we can look into the future and see what's what's going to happen um, if we do such and such or what could happen. Uh, so it's that what could happen. We don't know that it's actually going to bring about that result. Yep. Um, they've done psychological experiments in what they call prospect theory. I think I may have talked about this once before. And they discover that human beings, for one reason or another, are very, very risk-averse. They don't like to take a risk where they could lose, even if they could win. And that's what seems to be a failing, and I don't know why that evolved. But apart from that, it's, a, it's inbuilt to us to make choices and to see those options. Mm. Back in the classical era, you know, the era of uh, Isaac Newton and um, uh, the Bernoullis and um, all those fantastic mathematicians, uh, shouldn't forget Leibniz, uh, because he also in, had a had a role in developing the calculus. There was a group of um, siblings, and I've always known them as the Bernoulli brothers. Mm, amazing family! Like, like eight of them who were all pretty distinguished in in their fields. 
Absolutely. They were all amazing. But one of them is a woman. So we should never say the Bernoulli brothers yes. again. And I'm, I'm always stumbling over that. The Bernoulli family, you know. Um, they were amazing. And before that, there was a guy called Gardono. He was an inveterate gambler. And he invented mathematics to, to gain advantage in his right. gambling. <laughs> so, it was like a sort of an, so, an old-time uh, version of David Walsh from Tasmania. He's credited as being the instigator of a lot of mathematical theory in the classical era. And one of those theories was theories of games, mm-hmm. theories of chance. Mm-hmm. And he, he you know, uh, quantified what is the probability of getting a um, royal flush if you got this hand, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, and used it to advantage. Well, that that theory, the Bernoullis, of course, took it to the whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And they looked at where it worked and, and where it didn't work. And I'm interested in that because a lot of the risks that occur with information security, a lot of the risks that we worry about are the kind of risk where the whole business disappears because of an attack. So an attack occurs, the website is down for a week, you lose your reputation, you lose some data. You know, the stats are businesses in that situation just don't come back. A high proportion never come back. So that's kind of an infinite loss <laughs> to, to a business. Yep. Even if it's not infinite, it's very large. So the example I give to my students, I must stress I'm not encouraging gambling and I do stress that. And there's no games in the casino that would allow you to make money. I give them a bet and I say, um, suppose you put down $40 and if it comes up ahead, I give you $100. Otherwise, I take your 40 So it's 60 to 40 right? Mm. If you understand, you either win 60 or you lose 40 And that's a good bet. Mm. And I tell, tell my students, if that vet bet was available to me I probably wouldn't have to be a teacher (laughs) this sort of world was open to God don't know but there is no bet like that of course at the casino yeah right however when you offer bets like that to people on the street they don't they don't take it so what we need to do in life is take little steps forward and don't try to be a Vin Diesel and win every time that's impossible be prepared to lose because that's the way you win, yep. right? Anyway, when you multiply that bet by millions, so if you've got to put up four million. You may win six million on on the throw of a coin. It still comes out as a what they call expected value or average gain. It still comes out as a positive gain, and it's a huge positive gain. But the chance is that 50% of the time, you've lost $4 million. How did you get that $4 million? Well, you probably went to the bank, to your family, made up stories about business. You know, your life is is a wreck. Mm. Expected value doesn't work in that case. It, even though mathematically it doesn't outweigh it, in terms of the tragedy yeah. in your life, Practical it does. Effect. Yep. Yeah, so money values in risk can be dangerous that way as well 
when they're hitting that line of, of the whole business going under. And the same, the same in real life. But the Bernoulli brothers also identified, because the calculus was being invented, and the calculus uses limiting processes. One of the ideas with the limit is you can always divide up a particular length. Centimeter, millimeter, nanometer, you can keep on dividing up. But when you look at the limiting process with bets, there's a bet which uh, probably a lot of listeners are familiar with where you keep on doubling up. So you go to the roulette table and you, if you lose, you double up so that you cover what you lost from the last bet. And then you double up and then you double up until you win and you've covered all your bets and then you start again. Yep. So the idea is there you can never lose. But it's potentially infinite and you can lose. Eventually your stake is going to gonna hit zero. Mm. It's a terrible strategy. But there's a paradox called the St. Petersburg paradox. It sort of inverts it. Every time the toss of the coin comes up ahead, you double the gain that the player can make. And what happens there is you, you keep multiplying a smaller and smaller amount by a bigger and bigger number, a smaller and smaller probability by a bigger and bigger number. And the actual return on the game is infinity. <laughs> so that's the EV, the expected value is infinity. And that that's a really, really interesting problem. But it comes about because of using infinities. What mathematicians do when they talk about risks like this is they impose a limit. There's a maximum value, typically called capital M. In order to stop this kind of paradox, the total wager and the payoff cannot be bigger than M. Yep. So it's built into the maths, this lovely maths of calculus and, and the use of infinities and limiting processes, that it doesn't make sense unless you impose an actual finite limit yeah. yep i think that's kind of interesting can we bring back this talk about probabilities outcomes back to you know the subject of the day and unfortunately is is covid 19 this exponential spread uh, and a pandemic is there stuff that we can well, learn from from risk analysis that is going to shed light on this well, the risk is you go to the supermarket. I think you suggested earlier when we were talking, you know, what is the risk of going to the supermarket? You only need one of the little invisible buggers, mm. you know, uh, to, be, to be on the surface of something that you touch. And you go home and it grows exponentially in your home. And you, you all, and you potentially die. Mm. So the payoff there is death, which is pretty final and pretty, pretty large. Um, I shouldn't be joking, should I? I mean, it's terrible. So you can't be cleaning every surface on your home, and you can't be not eating. Mm. 
I mean, I actually am losing weight because I'm eating less, but I think that's because when I'm at work, I, I, I go to different stores and all that sort of yep, stuff. Yep. You've got to eat and you've got to get your food. You've got to go to the supermarket or, or buy it in, but Woolworths offers, does deliveries. Um, so does Dan Murphy's, I've, I've found. <laughs> More importantly. <laughs> More importantly, I needed to buy my headset for this interview with the mic and that got delivered but it does pay I think to do little things that you can and to realize that that they're very they're invisible so washing your hands just being careful to clean surfaces mm. I was talking to one of my friends from RMIT who works at RMIT whenever he goes to the supermarket he takes um, hand sanitizer yep. with him and he um, cleans his hands before he gets in back into the yeah. car. I mean, we would have laughed know, at that, I know, wouldn't we, a couple of weeks ago? It, we do the same thing, and it, and it really be- almost becomes ridiculous because you don't know whether you're overreacting or not. You're assuming the worst. So things that you've taken off the shelves in the supermarket, right, they had to be put there by someone. Do you actually wipe down the individual goods that you've bought from the supermarket. I'm talking about packaged goods. Oh, boy. You know, it, it's, um, it's, it, it, it's, yeah. I agree with you. I mean, that is one of the bizarre things about about all this is that it's, normally you'd associate it with sort of very obsessional, almost to the point of you know, being pathological, very obsessive and uh, over-cautious and checking and all this sort of stuff that we used to think that was uh, you know unusual people with possibly with um with underlying psychological issues did those things well we're now all doing them you know, <laughs> that's now normal behavior well 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 not necessarily normal behavior but in- increasingly widespread behavior the risks are such that it's probably not irrational mm. take it seriously keep on taking this seriously mm. even though people are going to be be wanting to get back to work and back to life as normal. It's a tricky so I balancing would... act though, isn't it? And particularly for younger generations. I went for a, a, a family ride and as you probably know, bike sales have gone through the roof, you know, so an example of where certain certain industries do well out of this or certain businesses do well. One of the few things you're allowed to do under isolation regulations in Australia is to get on your bike with your family and and it's it's exercise. You're allowed to leave your house and you go for a ride. Anyway, we rode down to a nearby beach and all the fishing off the pier there has been banned for quite a while. But as has, as has even, you know, you're not supposed to go swimming at the beach. You're not supposed to be jumping off the pier. You're not supposed to be sitting on a towel sunbaking on the beach. You can walk along the beach for exercise. And there were a bunch of kids there jumping off the pier. And, you know, such, such, Mm. and they were young kids and they'd all ridden there on their bikes. Such a a classically quintessential Australian thing to do on a sunny Sunday afternoon. But, you know, and you you kind of go, wow, that we are restricting things that much. And, and I mean, not to mention the effect on business. And we we touched on this before with Trump and the situation in America. There is going to be mounting pressure to normalize things or to relax restrictions not just because of people going stir crazy cabin fever it'll be very interesting to see that how much the divorce rate you know there'll be lots of new covid babies being born in nine months time uh, <laughs> quite a few people filing for divorce I, I suggest as well 
just the economic imperative and and social imperative, and particularly a young among young people who know, with some justification, that they're reasonably safe. The reason why young people are less susceptible than older is because their immune systems are less developed. When you're an older person and you get exposed to COVID, what actually can kill you is your immune response going berserk. And wow. you, it overreacts to the point where you die of, of it going crazy. It has a response which is appropriate to dealing with the, the virus, but then it, 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 that goes into a sort of runaway effect. comes back to that idea that it's very hard for them to, you know, on a sunny day. And you feel awful saying to kids, hey, you guys aren't supposed to be here. Your parents could be fined a lot of money for, for letting you or for, for not stopping you being here. There's going to be resistance. The more that this, you know, people see in Australia and other countries where isolation is sort of starting to take effect, the benefits can be seen, the curve is flattening. Then it's sort of like, well, what now? Can we go back to work? Can we get up? Can we try to salvage something out of our decimated economies? Um, can we start to see our friends or our loved ones or our grandparents? I know mean, you've got to feel sorry for older generations, some who are already quite isolated. Who, who literally haven't been able to see anyone because of, you know, a very dire and real fear, and, and not to be able to see their grandchildren, which is one of those yeah. remaining joys of joys. No, of look, life. I, I, I agree with you that 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 this is going to happen, and so what is going to happen in in the long term, I think, is that we're going to have to wait until there's enough immunity, and unfortunately until there's enough people deleted that it can stay at a acceptable level whether it will then come back I don't know I can't see that being less than a year maybe even two years and so in the meantime we're going to get people who want to go out and do things and um, you know what we Australianly Australians affectionately re refer to as dickheads, you know, <laughs> will go out and infect each other and will meet up in ways they shouldn't. But they will eventually become, in one way or another, deleted. Removed. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, people who are being responsible are making sure that the, that the beds aren't full in the hospitals. Yeah, you almost need a certain level of... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to coin to coin a term, <laughs> um, to 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 allow that that uh, the resistance to get those people to remove those people from the statistics, i.e., to either have them die or to have them with some degree of immunity. And then the problem with that is that that immunity, we don't know exactly how long that lasts for. It seems, from what I've read, that it it, it would at least last for you know several months and and maybe up to a few years. If we all get this app on our phone and there's been many mathematical advantages to having that app in terms of modeling the app would then allow certain very targeted areas to be locked down uh, when a case is picked up because you'd have that automatic contact tracing ability so instead of having to shut down the whole of, of Melbourne you could shut down the Mornington Peninsula or you could even shut down a you know a, a suburb you can say it's confined to this area yeah, the days of, of um, free international travel and even for a while national travel seem, seem to be over. 
What do you think about having? What do you think I about must, that app? Well, there's two sides to the app. Firstly, it's a great idea to have it. I totally endorse people who want to 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 use it. I'm not sure if I want to, because the other side is that there I haven't seen assurances that the data won't be sold on. Now, our data is sold on whenever you go on Google. You know, you go on Google and you type in, I don't know, holidays in Tahiti, and all of a sudden everything in your feed is holidays in Tahiti. Mm. And they're using big data systems to gather more more and more data about Mm. you. It wasn't until today that I saw the government had guaranteed your phone conversations and stuff would remain encrypted until today I thought in balance I'm not going to use it because I do value my privacy and you know we're supposed to be a democracy and we're supposed to have freedom but now I feel a little bit better about it and I might use the app but I'm still of two minds it's this security issue that I that I worry about plenty of examples in Eastern Europe of governments over there are taking advantage of, of lockdown laws and emergency powers. You know, even in Victoria, and I'm not saying this is going to happen in Australia for a moment, but even in Victoria, with emergency powers, which the state government has at the moment, they can defer elections. They can do lots yeah. of things with emergency yeah. powers. And one, yeah. of them, one of them is Absolutely. defer elections. If you didn't like your, your chances and you've got the perfect pretext right now to, to say, oh, it's a public health issue. Exactly. And as you can tell, I'm, I'm totally in favour of the lockdown. But if I didn't have a mathematical sense of exponential growth and, and of how, how dangerous this can be if we don't have the lockdown, I could be thinking it's overreaction. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. I'm talking to Dr. Ian Story, lecturer of information systems at RMIT. I think in the end, looking down a long time from now, maybe uh, six months or so, I think it's going to get to that point where people are going to want to break out and start to to doubt the government and the lockdown. I notice in America it's already happened mm. with Trump encouraging people to protest mm. the restrictions of the, of the various state governments. Where it could really backfire would be that if you have a huge um, spike in deaths in those places where he's made those in, that, that sort of encouragement to break out, then th- that's going to ruin his chances of getting those votes. They'll either be dead or, or people have taken notice that their friends and family were dying because of the changes they'd made or the premature breaking of, of lockdown. The doctors like Fauci are saying we must have these these lockdowns and I think they have a good idea of the modelling. They can gauge better than the economists when it's safe to go back to normalcy. Yeah. You know? They're being pushed all the time by, by sectional interests. The economy is suffering a lot because of this. Sure. <clears throat> and so uh, Trump, and I think even this is happening with, with Morrison as well, there's pressure to open up the economy. Yep. 
But at this point of time, once those pockets develop, there'll be spikes. We're not ready for opening up in any way meaningfully at this point in time. And yet, you know, the question remains is, is how long are we prepared to, and how long can we, if everything went back to normal tomorrow, would we avoid a depression? And, and even the answer to that, I, I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but I suspect that I mean, there's going to be repercussions even from now. And I think Bill Gates in his TED, the more recent TED talk he's done on coronavirus, and I'll post links with this later, but he said, this is about trading your wealth for the preservation of lives, but you are making that trade. So you're going to go from being, he didn't sort of really spell this out, he described the cost as gigantic. He said that you're giving up wealth for the sake of human lives. Which, and I'm not disagreeing with that as a principle. You know, at what point do you, do, you, do you have to sort of say, okay, well, we accept some risk, you know, and this is, you, you made the point much earlier on in the beginning of the conversation about how most people are risk averse and there's an irrationality to that risk aversion. And we have talked about this before. There's a, an earlier podcast discussion that, that you and I have had, and it's on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you've talked about that irrational aversion to risk and how it's actually counter to your it runs counter to survival benefit there is a need to accept the possibility of losing mm. you know in every turn mm. of the dice and that, I, but as long I know that lives are a pretty big thing to be gambling um, but if the alternative of not making that gamble is that you completely destroy uh, economies and with that livelihoods educations jobs futures and and then ultimately people's you, you know you you actually have a problem feeding people and then so then people are dying anyway or you have large scale and out of control civil unrest which is another big risk out of all of this as i would have thought war would be international war i think unrest in america is is a big yep. danger because they were concerned about looting, and, and as we know, they've got a very armed um, civilian population, highly armed, but instead of stocking up on toilet paper when the sort of run was happening a few weeks ago, Americans were stocking up on ammunition. Some yeah. guns, yeah, guns and, and, and ammunition. Um, and, and so before they could do the lockdown over there, one of the reasons there was some delay was because they had to roll out the, the military before they let businesses be locked down because the risk of looting and unrest was too great. You know, America's got lots and lots of weapons, that's for sure, both within its military and within its civilian population, like an unbelievable amount of, of firepower in one form or another. And, and they have used that. That was the way they guaranteed that, to, at least to some extent, I think it was, a, it was seen as a prerequisite uh, to having a lockdown, was having the military in place to enforce it and, and to protect businesses that were not occupied property that was sitting idle i think in in the united states unless there is something done to give relief to people because their their medical care is not that mm. great mm. people having lost their jobs have lost their medical insurance and that's a huge proportion of the population who and um already a huge proportion couldn't afford to get sick the current methods that they have of of pumping up the banks and you know it, currently it's it's just a machine 
printing money, you know, money has been pumped and pumped and pumped in. I think that system can't work forever. And eventually, this is going to be like the end of the Second World War, where they had a, a, a new deal. It was a kind of start again and just roll out lots and lots of manufacturing jobs. Yep. All of the manufacturing that was tuned in America for tanks and guns was turned over to producing consumable yep. goods. There were lots of programs for public buildings, you know, the famous one being the Hoover Dam. Yep. The whole world surrendered its manufacturing to China. A lot of it did. And in Australia, we completely did. Something that we're going to probably have to change, and, and that will require some really big changes, like the, the idea of you know, what labour costs in Australia, which is one of the reasons why manufacturing didn't work. It was much cheaper to do it overseas in China. Why would you do it here? And yet, that's something that we're going to need to do if we want to have jobs. Well, absolutely. And I, I, don't, I don't see that happening. I, I just see the same, the same things happening. The millennials won't have prospects where they should have prospects. You know, they should have, everyone should have, have the opportunity of a decent life. And coming out the back of this, I don't think that those kind of New Deal schemes are, are going to be even possible. I really don't know what's going, to, what's going to happen at the end of this. I do think, though, I do think that the economy comes down to what people do, not where the pieces of paper are. So even though the pieces of paper, you know, money, affects the economy greatly, and even though they're pumping money into banks and, and, the, and the stock market, once we come out of it, we've still got all the same jobs we had before being possible. Do yeah. you know what I'm saying? And maybe some new ones. It's not like, oh, this only happened to you or to me. This has happened right around the whole world, happened everywhere. It hasn't fully played out yet. There is an economy or there is, there is value in, in things beyond banknotes or or figures on, a, on a, an account balance. We're going to go back to fundamentals in some ways. I think it's, it's inevitable. We are, we're going yeah. to have to. Well, and, and things like, so, so for some people, it's going, to, it's going to suit them down to the ground. People who've been wanting to live off the grid, who've been wanting to be self-sufficient, who've been wanting to live off the land, those sort of people are, are going to be happy as pigs in mud. I'm, I'm kind of happy. <laughs> I do miss going out, but I think this is something too that we should say towards the end of this. There are ways of keeping yourself upbeat. And this is something I had to be mindful of right from the start with my students. I'm online, I'm talking to students, some of them who are from overseas, who are away from their parents from the first time. Mm. And I, I, I need to be upbeat, you know. And also in your own home, you can do things like have Skype conversations or whatever social media it is with other people in your family. Yep. So keep, keep that facial sort of contact mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. And that makes, I think that makes a huge difference. I've been meeting people who I lost contact with and I've been having a, a, a great time getting, getting back and talking to them. It's, you know, that's been yep. really good. So I think you can remain upbeat without just binging on Netflix. Yep.
people yeah. learning languages. There's, it's an opportunity to do all sorts of things. Cap- catch up on reading or write the book that you you never did. Mental health is a is a really important thing to keep in mind in all this. That there's going to be and that's what it's one of those flow on consequences of what we're all going through. Let's keep the channels open, Ian, because I'd love to speak to you again and talk about modelling, talk about exponential growth, those sort of things. Changes that are going to happen from this, you know, what the future's going to look like, what, what, what is the wash-up of COVID-19? These are really interesting and important conversations to have, and people are having them. People are trying to shed light on them. You know, there's people t- saying that the move from, from the office to home for a lot of people to do their work, to do their job, may wind up being a permanent change because it, it gets proven or it gets demonstrated that, that for a lot of jobs it actually works. So you don't need an expensive office or you don't need to spend an hour and a half a day commuting in and out of, uh, out of the, the big smoke. You know, virtual reality, which is a technology that is becoming more developed, well, the next football match we go to, they're saying the MCG is going to be closed for a long time. The next footy match might be where we're all wearing VR goggles or the next wedding we go to. Or VR is, is it's that, that, that step beyond using Skype or, or house party or Zoom or whatever you're using. Well, I think in that regard, there are some new technologies coming down the pipe. Right. There's 5G. Yep which has some interesting elements. Maybe we can talk about this mm-hmm. next time. There's a new Wi-Fi standard, right. which potentially could allow you to buy things even at Starbucks. I'll believe it when I see it, but that would be great. And there's, in America at least, a new band for Wi-Fi opening. Right. So you can have a lot more channels. So what's happening in, in congested areas people's Wi-Fi is colliding with each other and so there's a lot more channels opening and a lot and some faster channels too so to make VR goggles workable without a huge computer on the on the goggles and to allow freedom of movement you need that fast connection zero latency it's also interesting there is a lot of conspiracy theories about how 5G is going to turn us all (laughs) cook out brains the towers the new towers in England they are too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Great talking and thanks for speaking today, Dr. Ian Story, lecturer in information systems. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very right. much. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.